Why do we think they won't be affected? They are human beings. And the telling of that story allows it to be processed. And you have to do it in a way that feels safe to you, right? You have to tell it in a place that, you know, I'm not saying everybody go and get on a podcast and tell all your most traumatic stories. That's not what either of us is saying. But the more you tell it, the less alone, I believe, you will feel. Hi, folks. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Welcome to the 75th episode. I can hardly believe I'm saying that. Our guest this episode is Claire Murphy. Claire is the director of story for the Mission Critical Team Institute. And if you're anything like I was when I first heard that, you might wonder why a group like the Mission Critical Team Institute needs a director of story. But story and the stories we tell ourselves turn out to be so critical to how we do what we do and who we think we are. I've seen Claire work literal magic, helping rooms full of hardened operators make meaning out of experiences and come together to understand their lives in different ways. And I'm absolutely delighted to share some of that with you in this episode. Claire describes herself as being fueled by myth and a deep curiosity about the human condition. She's been working with Story since 2006 and has performed in more than 20 countries. When not performing herself, she trains and consults in all things Story with teams, organizations, companies, and individuals. Now, that bio is a massive understatement of someone who is a deeply transformative and brilliant person, and I think you're going to love this. Not surprisingly, we talk a lot about story in this episode. We dig into stories as methods of teaching, stories as ways to understand the world around us, and stories that guide our vision of ourselves. This is an episode that I wish I had access to earlier in my career, although if I'm really being honest with myself, I might not have been ready for it then. Before we get started, a reminder. If you're enjoying what we're doing here at the Emergency Mind Project and you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter. It's called Knowledge Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com slash sign up. Also, if you want to help support the work here at the Emergency Mind Project more directly, you can contribute on our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash emergencymind. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash emergencymind. Since this is going to be the final episode for 2022, I want to pause here and say a deeply heartfelt thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for contributing. Thank you for joining in. And thank you for being part of what we do here at the Emergency Mind Project. I wish all of you all the best for the coming year. That said, let's jump in. I hope you enjoy. Claire, I am so happy to have you on the podcast. It is awesome to see your face again. I wish we were doing this in person around a walk through the city or over a beer, but this is amazing. Thank you for joining the podcast. I am honored to have you. Oh, I'm so delighted to be here. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, if it was only a walk down the street, but we'll make do with the online. Slightly farther away at this moment physically. <laughs> for folks that have not had yet the pleasure of meeting you and intersecting with you and seeing the depth of your work. Who are you and what are you about? I love it. You're starting with the really easy questions, mm -hmm. nothing existential. Exactly. So I am Claire Murin Murphy and I am a storyteller and have been working as a storyteller with Story since 2006. And that work started off with me as a performer on stage telling stories, which is different from acting and writing and all of that, because storytellers, as you and I have talked about many times, we stand there and we tell, we don't recite, we don't quote from memory. It's the telling, the live telling of a story. It could be anything from two minutes to two hours. But this work led me down all kinds of paths with all kinds of people into all kinds of sectors because the skills of a storyteller can, of course, be transferred into all of these other places. So I've ended up in the last 16 years in such a huge variety of rooms because 
everybody, aside from storytellers, have to talk about what they do. And very few people get any help with that. So I've ended up training people and consulting on story and things like that. And you and I met because of Mission Critical Teams Institute, where you're Mission Critical Medical and I'm Mission Critical Story, which is never expected to be in that room either. So my life has been a wonderful, strange gathering of happenstances, is what I would say. So there's something really absolutely magical that happens every time that I've gotten a chance to be in a room with you, which is that you get introduced as the director of story for Mission Critical Team Institute. And usually we're in the room with, to quote our mutual colleague, Preston Klein, who a bunch of folks who are like straight wolves of one form or another. And these people look up and that you could hear their ears perk up as they're like, director of story? What is that? And then over the course of the next little bit of time, just like sheer magic happens and everybody walks away at the end of it being like, this is one of the greatest experiences that I've ever been through. And there's so much depth in that. And if you're listening to this and you're like, why are we talking about storytelling? Buckle up. (laughs) You're about to go through this. What are stories and why do these exist? And what do we do with them? Isn't that it? That's the question. What are stories? So stories are ancient technology. Stories are vehicles. They are messages from the ancient past. They're the way we pass on culture. They're the way we make meaning. They're the way we transfer knowledge. And I'm fascinated by stories that have survived a really long time. So we've only had writing for, depending on who you look at, 10,000 years, say, but we've had, we reckon, the evolutionary biologists reckon we've had oral stories for 100,000 years. So When you look at how long a story lives for, the reason it lives is because people still find it relevant. And people still find it relevant because there's something useful inside of it that that lives along with them as their teacher. So stories act as these incredible carriers of knowledge. They keep company with people. One of the guys in the room said one of his teachers had told him a story and six years later, he still remembered the story. And this is part of that. You call it that magic happens. And the neuroscientists can unpack that for us and they can say all of the things that are happening in the human brain when we listen to a told story. It's different from reading a book. It's different from hearing a story read, right? There's something else that happens. A lot of empathy is generated. And we have been telling stories for so long that our brain were born waiting to hear them. We hear them from the time we're a small child and it's a mechanism by which we make sense of the world. Emotionally, if you're telling stories to your kids, you're empowering them with the tools that they're going to need to later face difficult things. Though that might not seem obvious at the time. It might just be a story about a frog and an owl. But inside that story, somebody made that story because inside of it is something really useful. So if you transfer that out to your work or any of the work of mission critical teams, all these people doing these significantly hard things that are hard for the best trained people of the world, but nobody's talking about what's happening to them. Then the knowledge and the experiences of what is happening isn't, I'm jumping ahead here, The knowledge and the experience of what's happening isn't getting passed on, but more than that, the person themselves who has the experience, if they don't tell the story, they don't make meaning. So cultures have told stories because they know that human memory is a fickle thing. So if we can wrap it up with a story, it'll get passed on. And those stories are full of symbols. You know, what you saw in the rooms, when I start telling a story, it's not the Claire effect, right? It's the story effect. So the brain gets switched on in a way that's so incredible. I call it entering the mythic self. The neuroscientists say that there's no mythic part of the brain, but so much gets switched on and they see the story happening. They can feel the story happening with their bodies. So they're walking through an experience that doesn't exist. Once upon a time, a long time ago, doesn't exist. So we're time traveling. 
You're feeling it in your body. Your empathy, your emotions are triggered. You care for someone you've never met and you emotionally wrestle whatever dilemmas in the story, you wrestle with it. Your brain wants to figure it out. All of that can happen in under two minutes. And you also forget the room you're in, your to-do list, your worries, all of that stuff that we live with every day disappears while you're dealing with a story. So that's why we need it. And that's what it could do. And it's, I've been working with it, Dan, for 17 years and I'm continuously astonished by what happens, by what I've seen, the reactions I've seen. Like I saw a kid who hadn't spoken for four years start talking. I saw a guy with Alzheimer's start telling his wife a story and she was just standing there going, what was happening? He retold a story he had just heard. So what are stories? Stories are these vehicles. What can they do? As far as I'm concerned, they can do almost anything in the world, depending on how we choose to use them. And that's the other thing is, of course, stories can be used There's a great quote by, I think it's Maya Angelou, who said, creativity is like electricity. It's there and available what you choose to use it for, whether it's lighting a hospital or an an electrocution chair, right? Stories are like that. You can use them either way. They can be used to manipulate people and they could be used to inspire people, depending on what you want to do. Oh, all right. (laughs) Let's get into it. So much in there. So love this idea of Stories as ancient technology that that sort of grew up with us, for us, and by us to transmit and alter ideas and teachings and problem sets and questions and everything like this. Because on a personal level, like one of my favorite stories, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is arguably the oldest written down human story, starts literally with the phrase, this is an old story, but one that we can still tell, which I love because That is the first sentence of what we think is the oldest story that we have record of. But clearly it's not even close, right? Because it's starting at the oldest. So this has been with us as humans for a long time. And I think it's worth saying out loud that a lot of times in these high performance environments that we work in, we drift from our core innate basic humanity. And we drift into this other stuff because we're really concerned about measuring heart rate variability and doing the absolute best virtual reality training, all of which are important and interesting and wonderful. But we're also humans in the center of that. And that humanity grew up with stories. And it's one of of our vehicles that we've been using to make sense and to train ourselves forever. So that's part of why I wanted to get together and talk about this, because I didn't have any formal training in this. And the first couple of times I was exposed to it, holy hell, there's so much in here. Over the next little bit, we can drift in sort of two directions. One of which is the stories that we tell each other, and one of which is the stories that we tell ourselves. And I think both of these are critically important for what we do at Mission Critical Teams and what we do at the Emergency Mind Project and what our listeners to this are doing when they're purposefully exposing themselves to risk, pressure, and danger for the betterment of humanity and society. And then when they're also coming home from that, both of which are incredibly challenging sets. I have no idea where to start with that. I've got to jump in. So you've just said something brilliant, which is the stories we tell other people and the stories we tell ourselves. The stories we tell other people, I want to comment on that because you said the first time I was exposed to this, I think you mean story when you say that, right? But you mean the first time you're exposed to story with me. You have, of course, been exposed to story your whole life. And this is the bit I want to get at in terms of the stories we tell other people. So what I come across most commonly in all the different workshops that I do, and I say all the different workshops because I work with so many different people that this next fact is important. 
most, and I would say 98% of the people have told themselves some version of the following. I'm no good at telling stories because I don't remember them. I'm not as good as that guy. My dad was the storyteller. Insert relevant disbelief here. The truth is, you have been around stories your whole life. You do tell stories your whole life. But as soon as we start to think about telling stories, we think of it as a performance or having to impress or make people laugh. And that shuts down our desire to tell because we're comparing ourselves to other people. What starts to happen when I help people bypass some of those anxieties, and those anxieties are really normal, right? Because life's hard enough without having the oh, now to kind of tell stories as well. But the thing I want people to really remember, no matter where you work, is that you have a lifetime's experience of telling stories in your body. So this is not new territory. You're just now starting to think about it as new territory, right? That's really important because you're actually an expert at it. If I say to you right now, Dan Dworkis, think about somebody you know that you've worked with or in your family who's a terrible storyteller. Can you think of someone like that? You start laughing, right? So you, can you think of the things that they do that make you switch off as a listener? Just like name what, I don't want to know who it is. I don't want to know where it was, but just name one of the qualities that kind of makes you just stop listening. Yeah. Overt preaching. So you know that, right? Because you've been watching storytellers your whole life. You also know what makes a good story. So I want anyone listening to just be aware. Of course, the first time you go to tell a story with more conscious attention, it's going to feel a little bit clunky, right? But like anything, we can get better at it. And the more we do it, like a muscle, the better we get at it. So that's just like a really important piece, I think, for me. And we've dug into this a little bit in prior intersections. But so what you're saying and what I think is such an important thing is that we're always listening to and always telling stories. It's basically how we communicate as human beings. But in certain environments, like environments that become hyper-technologized or hyper-digital or hyper-forable, we've become less likely to tell stories. And there is there are pros and cons to that. So maybe let's stick for a minute on the stories that we tell each other. Because a lot of the folks listening to this work in teams or organizations or structures where they're responsible for some part of an activity that a group is doing. And that could be a high pressure thing or a low pressure thing. It, often it goes back and forth. How do we think these people are telling stories already? And how should they be telling stories? Or how could they be telling stories that are more empowering and more useful to communicate? A lot of people don't tell any stories because they think they, the thing I hear most commonly in medical is, I don't have time. Who has mm. time? And I've spent the last three years since the pandemic kicked off, talking to a lot of different people in medical, try and get a sense of that community and what you all have to go through on a daily basis. And I know that you're short on time. So I know a lot of people don't tell stories. They see it as a kind of leisure activity. But to make this example work, I'm going to ask you to tell me something that I, this is how I first met you without ever meeting you. You were being interviewed by Dr. Preston Klein on the MCTI podcast. And he asked you to tell a particular story he must have heard you tell before, which is the first day of meeting a new team in your first day of a new job. And you were just being introduced to the team when an alarm sounded. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Would you mind telling us the story for a sec? Sure. So it's day one of working at a, a new space. And I had barely walked into the space before introduced myself to some folks. This was maybe 
first or second patient that I was seeing that day. I was still figuring out where the bathrooms were and where all of the details were like that, right? And we get a code three, level three trauma coming in, which is about the highest trauma activation that we can come up with in this facility. And it sounds like the person is really sick, like just really sick. And this is like a summon, like an all hands on deck kind of case. And frankly, I thought I was there just like to orient and figure out how to sign onto the computers. And the person who was orienting me was like, okay, here you go. You're up. You have about a second to switch gears in your head and and galvanize the team around you and decide how you want them to work and how you want to work with them. When we had about a minute or two before this person came in for me to introduce myself and step up and make that happen. Do you remember what you said? (laughs) Yeah. I said, hey, folks. Dan, y'all don't know me, but you will. We're going to talk afterwards a lot more about how to work together. But here are a couple things that I want right off the bat. If I do anything untoward, push back on me and let's get through this together. I'm sure I said it more gracefully than that and probably with a deeper Texas accent, which I sometimes put on when I'm a little bit nervous, but that was the broad brushstrokes of it. And at the end, how did you know your team was on your side? What happened after? Because I know the guy survived. What happened after mm. the event? Gentlemen survived and the process threw up all over me in one form or another. So I like walk out of the room. I had done a really good resuscitation. I am very technically proud and pleased. I thought my team performed well. I was really psyched because it really boded well for how this group was going to work together. And I was even more excited to work with them. And then I realized I, I had no idea where the spare clothes were kept. And I was, hey, folks, can somebody help me out here? And order me up a new pair of scrubs from our central supply. And they nodded and smiled to themselves and brought me a shirt that was about 10 sizes too large and pants that were about 10 sizes too small. I can't even describe how absolutely foolish I looked in this stuff, but it it was a great, okay, thanks. I appreciate that. This is very clearly you telling me I'm part of the team. So thank you for that. And I heard that I was walking around a supermarket listening to this podcast and I was cracking up. (laughs) because it's a very short story. It's a very simple story, but it's a story about many different things. There's people listening to this podcast right now, and some of them are on emergency medical teams, and they're right now remembering similar situations that they've been in that have gone differently. They're remembering being in a position on that team, either being you or being somebody else. There are other people who are non-medical who are listening to this, who are thinking about situations where they've met a new boss and it's all gone terribly wrong. So inside that story for me, there is a ton of information and knowledge about how you operate as a human being, how you want your team to behave, your sense of humor, their sense of humor, how cohesion works, what's needed in an emergency. And you don't have to explicitly say any of those things for me to understand them. And this is the bit that I want people who work on emergency teams to really figure out is that knowledge transfer is enormous. So much can be delivered in such a short amount of time. If you're trying to develop team cohesion or confidence or risk-taking or responsibility or attention to detail. A friend of mine who's a physician associate here in the UK was saying that they'll sit there when she was getting trained, they would sit there and there was all this theory and they'd be sitting there listening to lectures from visiting physicians. And she said, but it was afterwards when they'd be doing the rounds and the physician would say, I had a case like this 20 years ago and everybody would get really quiet. The physician would tell the case from 20 years ago. And she said, we would learn more in that two minutes than all the theory that came before. So there's something that starts to happen in terms of theory and knowledge and memory. But what most people think is my stories aren't worth telling. Now, all you did was tell me an intro story of your first day in a new job. 
Does that resonate? You're asking what story should people be telling? And my answer is there are, you have, you personally have thousands of stories that could be useful. You have to start telling them to figure out what shape they have, how long they are and what they'd be useful for. So you can't just say, you know what, I need a story about new teams. You start to just (laughs) go through your memory and you do what I call story mining. So you become an archaeologist of your own memories and you go to those flashpoints where something happened that was intense. It might be intense good, it might be intense bad, it might be funny, it might be weird. There might be the image of you and the giant weird scrubs and then you work backwards from there. But you don't necessarily know what knowledge is in that story until you tell it to someone else and then you see the light go on for them and then you figure out what they've learned from it. And so the transfer is just massive. So one of the ways that we use that we are and I'm going to keep this under the sort of the heading structurally of these are stories that we're already telling each other, right? We're already doing this work, even if we're not particularly conscious of it, which is that like, sometimes we use a story to illustrate a particular point, like what you said about, oh, I had a case like this recently, right? So a situation that I consistently find myself in, and I know a lot of our listeners do too, is you are in a situation and you're watching another person do a thing that you've already had some experience with. Maybe it's the right thing, maybe it's the wrong thing. And you want to use a story to help them reinforce that action or change that action or contextualize that action, right? And there's one thing that's saying, hey, don't do that or go faster, right? And okay, like you can do that, but it seems to be so much more valuable and so much more worthwhile, even if it doesn't make sense at the beginning to be like, hey, I'm going to Just before you do that, can I tell you about this other thing that I did once? Yes. Yes. I agree with this on many levels. So a lot of, whether you're spiritual or not, whatever your belief system is, listeners, a lot of spiritual teachers use story for this exact reason, because it engages emotional intelligence. It requires the listener to wrestle with concepts and then learn the lesson without having to go through the painful experience. Like Aesop is a great example, Mm -hmm. right? Aesop stories still around. They were never written down by Aesop. They were composed orally. They were stories he told and they were told to sow seeds of rebellion. So he was a slave and he was trying to sow seeds. So to sow seeds of how you use your strength, your wit, come together as a team, it's all in. But unfortunately, somebody added on the moral at the end because the great act of telling a story, like you say, is you foresee a problem coming. Let me just tell you, I faced this problem actually five years ago and I did a terrible job. Let me tell you the terrible job I did. There's a lot happening there. You're building cohesion, you're building camaraderie, you're building community with that person. They feel less isolated and you're showing them what you learned in that situation without, like you say, being didactic or overly preachy. There's a number of substances that if you withdraw from them, you could actually die. There's a lot of substances that if you withdraw from them, it's really terribly uncomfortable, but you're not actually at risk of dying. And then there's a small number that if you withdraw from them in the wrong, unsupported way, you could actually die. Alcohol being a very prime example of this. So sometimes when I'm working with my team on this, you present it the way it was sometimes presented to me is, Dorcas, what are the three or four things that if you'll die, if you withdraw from? And you're like, ah, okay, brace up and try to remember everything really quickly. And then another way to do it is to start with that idea of, hey, I missed this once when I was about your level of training. This is why we're going to talk about this because I had this patient and here's what happened and here's what happened to it. And man, I still think about this guy and part of my ethos of never wasting suffering alternately said, part of my penance for what happened for this person or part of my desire to leverage what happened is to think about this case again. So here, we're going to talk about this. And by the way, along the way, here's a couple of things that also structurally are similar. What else can you think of that we can do in there? And 
the lights that go on in people's eyes when they get taught in that way, when they get invited to be part of it and invited to live through that story are just so different. They're so different. Yeah. And this is the exciting thing about the neuroscience that's coming in now to back this up, which is if you just deliver a lot of theory, the brain can only retain so much for so long. If you deliver a story and just as you described there, you wrap the theory within it, it lodges it into long-term memory because our empathy, our oxytocin is activated, our empathy, we see this as emotionally significant. We latch onto it, we hold onto it. And I'm seeing this in the sports world as well and everywhere. It's like, if you want to motivate people, you use the story to activate the brain, like you were saying, and then give them the knowledge that they need. But there's another piece to it though, which you've done a lot of, and you talk about not wasting suffering. It's really important for passing on knowledge, but it also allows you to make meaning of your experiences. So when memories stay as memories, they can haunt us or keep us company or wake us up at 3 a.m. If we don't tell those memories, they stay in the subconscious part of the brain. As we begin to tell them, we distill memory into experience. And the more time we spend with the story, even if it's difficult, that experience becomes knowledge. And eventually that knowledge will get distilled into wisdom. Like I remember when my dad died. So my dad died when I was 19 and it was my first big death. I'd had a couple of grandparents die before that, but they were quite old and it was very unexpected. And it was one of those world changing events. And I remembered that when anyone asked me how I was doing, I would just say, oh, my dad just died. And people do that thing when there's some shock like that. They respond in one of two ways. They might say, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. Or they'll quickly change the subject, which is mostly what happened. And I remembered feeling really shocked by that response because there wasn't anything anyone could do for me. I just wanted to let people know what was happening the way you do when you're 19. And I remember telling myself, if anyone ever brings up death with me, I'm always going to answer and I'm always going to be willing to share the story about my dad. And it was hard the first few times I did it. Like you're saying, never waste suffering. But what I started to realize was by just acknowledging, it's not like a do for other people's grief. It's not like a, I can't end other people's suffering. But by being willing to acknowledge it, I saw the light go on in their eyes where for a moment they were allowed to sit with their grief in public. And then either the conversation went into grief and we talked about our griefs or they said, thank you, they moved on, right? So I think it's as important for the storyteller as it is for the story listener. And especially in your world with all the stuff you guys are going through, especially the last three years, there's a lot of accumulated grief within you all, the great practitioners who are doing all of this work, but aren't given necessarily a lot of mediums to talk about what's happening. So true. And this is, I think, one of the most important things that I was hoping to get into today, which is that we talked a little bit about how we're always telling stories to each other. Sometimes those stories are conscious. Oh, hey, here's a case I had similarly that was recent. Sometimes those stories are subconscious and they're just sort of like how we communicate back and forth about stuff. We're also always telling stories to ourselves. And this has been one of the most meaningful things that you and I have talked about over our time from my perspective is trying to start becoming aware of the stories that I'm telling myself. Can we talk about that a little bit? How do you tune into the stories you're telling yourself? What do you look at when you look at the stories you're telling yourself? 
hopefully we can eventually blur that into how could we be telling ourselves different stories. But even before we get there, how do we start? How do we start listening to the stories that we tell ourselves? Yeah, that's a really good question. And actually, I just want to put one more piece of, one more flag in the ground as some context around this, because it's totally possible that people are listening to this and being like, I don't tell myself stories. I just go to work and do my job. And I, I get that because that was me for a long time saying that, right? I'm an ER doctor. I go to work. I do my job. I heal the sick as best I can. I hold the line and I come home. But that's a story, right? That is a story, right? And the story is, I am a person who does X, and I'm a person who continues to do X. And there's another story, which is people who do X do Y, or people who do X don't do Z. And then there's another story, which is when I'm coming home, that person who did X and Y now does this. And there's so many linked assumptions that are underneath there, and those are stories. They're stories that we tell ourselves, they're stories that we build ourselves around as a really super concrete example of like of all of this i would probably say that i told myself a story for a long time that sacrificing myself was necessary to do emergency medicine because emergency medicine is about sacrifice and if i'm an emergency doctor then i must sacrifice myself maybe you're listening to this and you're like i don't tell myself stories Dan's full of shit, but I guarantee you, if you're in this world, you've thought to yourself at least once, sacrificing myself is necessary to do this thing. Because we are the homo neurons. So the homo neurons is the storytelling ape. Like you say, whether it's conscious or subconscious. So mine was, as I got started as a storyteller, I had these crazy stories like, oh, I have to suffer as an art because I'm an artist. Artists have to be poor and they have to suffer. So that was one of the really subtle myths. Yes. Everyone is telling themselves stories, whether that's, I did a terrible job at that. Everyone else thought my team is better than me. I always fail at this particular procedure. I'm really good at this procedure. I cope well with trauma, whatever it is, the stories we tell ourselves. The layer I want to add to that as well is one way to start thinking about the stories you're telling yourself is first to examine the water you're swimming in. So the culture that you move in is going to dictate how you tell those stories to yourself. And I've noticed on a lot of mission critical teams that there is a huge resistance to telling stories because, and then you've got to figure out which one fits your, which is your cultural border. I don't want to be the guy who sucks all the air out of the room. I don't want to be the storyteller. I don't want to waste people's time. I don't want to draw attention to myself. My story is not important. I'm here in service to others. Why would I talk about myself? I am a man, so I am the son of my father. My father never spoke about himself. Why would I speak about myself? No one else in my medical community ever talks about feeling bad about the traumas that we witness. So why would I? There are so many ingrained behaviors in mission critical teams. And they're slightly different for firefighters as they are for medical, as they are for, right? They're slightly different, but they're all there. And most of them pertain to, we don't talk about it. And I think that's really important. I'll add one type of water to that list because it's one that I felt for a long time, which is that I'm scared of telling the story. Because if I open up the box and I start really thinking about what happened, the faces of those people are going to come burning up out of the grave and take me apart. And I don't know that I'm strong enough to handle it. And that, which is in, a, in and of itself a story that I told myself, was a water that I lived in for such a long time. Even saying that out loud, man, I am hot. I feel this like heat and this pressure and this tension of even saying that I, to admit that I am afraid of telling some of these stories 
and or was afraid of telling some of these stories. What you said about examining the type of water you're swimming in is brilliant. I would say most of us that do this kind of work of one form or another, at least part of our water is that we're scared to look at it because we don't know what to do with it when it happens. And as you very clearly said, if I start talking, I don't know what will happen. Two things come to mind. There's an old Irish folktale about a king and he has, due to a series of events, he has donkey's ears. Okay. But he grows his hair long, so he hides the ears under his hair. But once a year, he has to get his hair cut. And every time he gets a barber to come in and cut his hair, he executes the barber because the barber sees his ears. So all the barbers are eventually dead and he has to find somebody to cut his hair. There's this boy and he gets picked and, and his mother goes pleading to the king, please don't kill him. And the king says, I'll only not kill him if he doesn't say a word about what he sees. So he cuts the king's hair and he sees the donkey's ears and it's such a bizarre thing, but he doesn't say anything. But he walks around afterwards with this secret and he gets sicker and sicker until he can barely breathe. And the healer comes and the mother is beside herself. She doesn't know what to do. And the healer says, you're going to have to say it. He says, I can't, I'll be killed. She says, you don't have to say it to me. So he goes wandering through the forest and he finds a tree and he goes up to the tree and he gets really close and he whispers, the king has donkey's ears into the tree. And he immediately feels the relief flood his body and he goes home. He lives and his mother's like, your feet. he starts walking around, he's talking, he's eating, he's drinking. A week later, the harper needs a new harp and the axeman goes and cuts down a tree in the forest. Just happens to be the same tree, makes the harp. The harper goes to play and as he goes to play, the song that emerges from the harp is the king has donkey's ears. The king has donkey's ears. The boy is brought up on his knees before the king and the king says, wow, I told you not to tell her. And the boy said, oh, I was at the point of death. I would have died. And the harper said, it's the tree that spoke, not the boy. And besides which, Aside from the killing of the barbers, you're a good king. We don't mind if you have donkey's ears, right? And there's this great rejoicing and the king is released from his shame and the boy lives, right? There are many stories like this in folklore all around the world that secrets make you sick. When I started working with the NHS, that's the National Health Service here in England, I started running storytelling workshops. What you said a few minutes ago, some version of that was said by almost everyone in the workshop. I don't think I can start telling these stories. But as people did, and they told all different kinds of stories about all different kinds of experiences, some of them intensely traumatic, and some of them might seem not as traumatic, but were pretty hard hitting, right? I won't reveal what those stories were, but it was a wide variety of things. The thing that happened was their bodies began to relax and the shame started to lift. And more importantly, They recognized themselves in each other's stories and realized they were not the anomaly. They were the commonality. And this is the superpower, right? Because you swam in that water for how many years telling yourself that to the point of nearly breaking. And that is what most, not all, but a lot of the people I've met in medical are doing. And yet, as you start to talk and you share it, someone else shares it, they're less likely to either quit medical or, and I'm going to say it out loud, or commit suicide. We're seeing high suicide rates and that's part of this drive to get people to tell stories. I was working with a group of veterans. I've worked with these veterans through this project for the last eight years. These are guys and men and women who've lost limbs, two limbs, three limbs, 
but they're in a wheelchair, whatever it is. This was one guy who'd had both his legs blown off in an IED explosion. And when he came into us, he was really quiet, really shy. He had his prosthetic legs and everything, and but he never really spoke up. And we had to pull the words out of him. But we worked with him for a week on telling his story. So that's life before the incident of, of being blown up and then life since. And it takes five days, right, to distill that into a 20-minute story that they then tell in schools and they go and talk to teenagers about resilience. But they tell the story first and then they talk about how they got through things. He comes back a year later and he saunters into the room to Like he looks taller, his head is up, he's making eye contact with everybody. His voice is bigger, brighter, warmer. And we were all just slightly taken aback by this. And he does the two-day refresher training. And at the end of it, we do a round circle and we just check in and we get a comment from everybody. And this is what he said. I wrote it down because it struck me so. He said, every time I tell my story, I release something from inside of me that's been killing me. And that's what I saw. I saw a man who had the poison drained from the wound. So why do we think these people who work in medical, who work in all these emergency teams, who see the most extreme things, be they firefighters or paramedics, people climbing up mountains to rescue people, Why do we think they won't be affected? They are human beings. And the telling of that story allows it to be processed. And you have to do it in a way that feels safe to you, right? You have to tell it in a place that you're saying, everybody go and get on a podcast and tell all your most traumatic stories. That's not what either of us is saying. But the more you tell it, the less alone, I believe, you will feel. There's a woman, Dr. Emily Silverman, who's running the Nocturnists podcast. And that's what she did at the start of the pandemic. She created an opportunity for people within medical to anonymously tell their stories just to release the pressure. Oof. Yeah. I wish that somebody had found younger Dan and armed him with some of these ideas. I am grateful for all of the times that people have pushed me to share some of the stories and to find ways to open up partly even about some of this stuff. I don't think that we get the training we need around that. I'm going to name here three stories that we're telling ourselves, and then I'm going to come back to this thought for a second. So far, we've talked about the stories we tell each other that are instructive or pushing or pulling. We've talked about the stories that we tell ourselves and each other about how life works, whether that's ER doctors do this or men don't talk about their feelings or whatever that story is about how life works. And then this third category of story is the story of a thing that happened that we're struggling to make meaning out of. And it doesn't feel polished like that beautiful story about the king with donkey ears, right? It doesn't feel like it's a complete thing. It just feels like this raw fire or whatever it is. And the first couple of times that I told any of these, one or two of which we've been in the room together for, I was like shaking even talking about it. And my guess is that again, if you're listening to this, you have some version of that. And you're probably, as you're listening to this, thinking about that thing. And maybe it feels like this massive blackness and this incredible thorny tentacled monster that's going to eat you if you start looking at it. And somebody asked me a question that stuck with me and helped me open up part of this. And so I'm going to pose this to everybody listening, which is if I were to say the first one or two words of this story out loud, what might happen? What's the worst thing that would happen? What's the best thing that would happen? And what could happen? Just for the first one or two words. The first time I heard that, that sounded like an incredibly dumb question because like, why would that even matter? And then it's one of those like depth charges that goes off in your brain like three days later and you're like, holy shit, 
I'm really scared of even saying the first couple words of this story. Oh, okay, why? I don't know that I have the strength to carry it, or I'm scared of what it says about me as a physician, or geez, I don't know that I did the right thing and I, I don't know how to face that, or I'm worried that it'll hurt the people that I tell the story to, that it's poison and that as long as I'm the only one carrying the poison, okay, great. But man, and this is a type two story, right? Stories about how the world works. Like as long as I'm carrying the poison, it's okay. But if I release that poison, it's going to kill everybody else around me, right? There's like the, what's the story about Shiva swallowing up the poison and turning his throat blue? Maybe it's Vishnu, I forget, that he like drinks the poison and that's what allows the world to be made. As long as you're the only one carrying it, it can't hurt anybody else. But if I let it go, it's going to hurt people. But that question, what do I really think would happen if I just tell the first one or two words of my story? I would encourage you to think about that and in a week or two, think about it again, because I think that being able to tell that type three story is so crucial for coming to grips with the humanity and the depth of what it is that we do. This is it, right? So you're the caregiver. You keep us healthy. You take us from the edge of death and back. And yet there's no humanity afforded to the health givers, to the health minders, to those who dance with death. There's no humanity given to that. And that's what stories do. They humanize us. So if you expect other people on your team to tell stories and you're not telling stories, it's not going to work. Because theoretically, getting them to tell stories, it's that culture eat strategy for breakfast. And it started to catch on here with the NHS teams I was working with, because it's those small examples like you have told me about this before, which is you being willing to talk about failure. And LA Alvarez has talked about this, allows other people on your team, which allows for analysis of failure. And then what do we take from that? What do we learn from that? And to go back to the idea of the water that we swim in, how do we expect to change the culture if we don't know that third story, right? Because mm. we're all indoctrinated into these cultures and we operate by the modes and behaviors within them. So if we don't tell the stories that are crippling us, that silence continues to add to the culture of silence that already exists. There's another resource I want to share with you, which is, have you come across Dr. Rachel Remen's work? No. She's wonderful. She set up the Rishi Foundation and she created the Finding Meaning in Medicine groups, FMMs, and they are all over the world now. But they're anonymous groups where you can go in, sit down, and you can share a story about something that happened at work. And I know a doctor here in the UK who set one up and he said the relief that And it, for him, it was GPs, so family doctors, I think he called them. The relief of, there are some stories that people have been carrying for 30 years around certain patients. And just the relief of being able to share that and not be judged, but just the freedom to share it. So check out Rishi. I think it's rishi.org, something like that. But yeah, if you look up Finding Meaning in Medicine, because like you say, the fear of the first few words, having a safe place in which to tell those or having, I think you had, did you have one friend? who was willing to sit and listen. It was the one who asked you. Absolutely. So not everyone has that, for right? listening to this. Yeah. <laughs> so if not everyone has that, they can check out the Nocturnist and there's an anonymous way to, there's lots of different ways into, if you don't have a key person to do that with. But what's astonishing is I watched a guy, very similar situation to what you were describing in one of the workshops. He's given me permission to share his story and he didn't know what was going to come out of his mouth. So everyone goes, oh, I don't have a story. I don't have a story. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. Just think about, and I say a few things and someone goes, oh, because they, like you said it a few minutes ago, you said, 
It's not going to come out as a polished story. And I think right. this is really critical, which is that's because it's alive. <laughs> so fables and folktales are great. I recommend everyone spend some time with them. They're really helpful. However, real life is messy and has no actual end until you die. So there's no neat end to a story. But as you tell it, you will start to realize its shape. And then when you tell it next year, it's going to be different because the ending will have changed. But he was telling this story about he was working in the morgue one night with his team. He was running the team and a kid came in and he knew that, that was going to be hard for his team. And then he looked and he recognized the kid. It was his neighbor. And he had this full body reaction to that. But he also was aware that he was trying to look after his team and he saw one of his people was looking a bit shook. So he made sure that he looked after her and he took her aside. He gave her a chance to have her moment. And at the end of the night, he didn't do it until the end of his shift. He let her know that actually he had known the boy. And as he finished it, everyone in the room was just on the edge of, this was on Zoom as well, by the way, on the edge of their seats, the feelings and the just the, what he shared with us. For him, that story, he didn't even think of it as a story, but there was so much in there about who he was as a leader, how he treats us, all that, how we deal with death, all of that stuff is in there. And it allowed then a deeper conversation to happen in that group that I was running around those experiences. So that's another thing that third type of story does is it gives permission for everyone else to step forward. It gives permission for people to step forward and to tell some version wherever they are, some little slice of what they're going through. And it also gives us the opportunity to forge something different out of it, to boil it into something that's useful. I don't know if we've ever made this sort of extant, but the whole idea of never wasting suffering, which has become such a pillar of my life and how I am as a human being and a pillar of the Emergency Mind Project and everything else that we're doing comes from me telling that story to my friend the first time and saying out loud, I don't know what to do with this, but if I do nothing, it wastes the suffering. And then realizing, I don't want that. I actually want the opposite of that. And that became the nidus, the seed crystal for all 99% of this. In fact, actually, like that's the thing that got me up the first time to give the first talk that rolled years later into the Emergency Mind Project. Really started from that. And I was the person in med school that laughed at the people telling the stories. I was the one that was like, that's for the weak people. That's the ones that like the people that talk about like how they're feeling. Screw those folks. I'm going to be an ER doctor. I have come a long way since then. <laughs> well, this is really helpful. This is really vital for me because what often happens is people go, yeah, but Claire, how do I find the stories that are going to be useful? How do I find that? This is the courageous story. You didn't get the tagline first. You had to go through yeah. the process, the really difficult process of facing into something that you turned your back on because you were afraid of dying more or less from it. You had to turn around and face it. And then you went through the process of actually telling it. And then as you said it, then you earned it. Do you know what I mean? You earned that bit of wisdom at the end that's become a guiding, not a parable, but a guiding pillar. Like I always think of the dead as they've left these lights along the way, along the path for us. A lot of the artists, I think of them as our kin who've left these little flags, these little burning lights. And that's what you got by telling your story. You wouldn't have gotten it any other way. So I want anyone listening who's, yeah, but I don't have a story like Dan has. It's, well, actually, you don't know that yet because you haven't walked through it. And sometimes it's the third or fourth or fifth time I tell something that I find something else that I go, oh, that's what it's about. And that's, this is the bizarre thing about story is the more time I spend, the less I know. And the more I realize how 
there's just this endless learning that happens with story. So you may have a story that you've told again and again. You'll get this feeling in your body that there's still something in there for you. If a story gets tired, you get tired of telling it. That's the time to put it on the shelf and let it sit and rest. But if that story is still nurturing you and you feel like it's still in service to your community, then you've got to keep telling it. And I've seen the effect of you telling that story. I've seen the yeah. effect it had on the teams and the effect it had on you. And it allowed that room, everyone in that room had been through an extreme experience. They sat a little easier in their bodies because you made it okay by acknowledging the extreme experiences. And this, that's what that community of silence does. It shuts down anyone feeling in any way in their body around, you know what I mean? You just, yeah. you let it all be and you didn't judge it. You didn't analyze it. You just said, this is in the room now. And everybody's body softened. Yeah. It's, I think it's hard. <laughs> it's incredibly hard to do. It's hard to keep doing. It's hard to open up and do it, but it's worth it. It's deeply worth it. And as we're coming to already almost an hour of this, which is amazing, I want to roll together into some ideas for folks listening to this about how they can start telling some of these stories and becoming conscious of telling some of these stories. Because this is going to be actually the thing we're going to end not only this podcast with, but this year of podcasts with. This is going to be our 75th episode. And by the time you're listening to this, it's almost the holidays and almost the end of the year. And it's a really powerful time to sit down and look at your own stories, right? Because you're looking back at the year, you're looking at the stories you've told yourself that you are telling yourself, and you're looking at the stories you want to tell yourself about who you're going to be next year. I think that this is a lot of a confluence, really auspicious time to tell stories. I'm going to start us off with a couple of things, and then maybe you can take us to the end of 2022 with these thoughts, which is that some of the stuff we've talked about is you're always telling stories and you're telling yourself types of stories and the types of stories have different shapes and different meanings. Some of those types are an instructive story or a story about how you think the world works or just a hard story that you're not even sure what story you're telling until you're jumping two feet into the cold water. We talked a little bit about knowing that you have stories somewhere inside you Maybe they're not obvious on the surface yet, but you can find them if you start looking. We talked about creating a safe space to tell the first part of your story, especially if it feels hard to do. We talked about a couple of resources for that. I would also honestly encourage as an alternative to that, just start telling your story out loud to yourself. And you can even third person it, right? One day there was this guy and this is what happened. Jim Collins, who's the author of Good to Great and an amazing sort of thinker, talks about he's created this character in his mind. I guess he used to want to be an entomologist, somebody that studies bugs. And so he's created this character in his mind that's called Bug Jim. And Bug Jim does what she does during a day, but Jim gets to watch him as a scientist, watch Bug Jim walk around and do this thing. So <laughs> his stories would often start with Bug Jim woke up and did this. I think that's amazing. You can use that sort of leverage on yourself. But what else, Claire? You've got the whole world listening at the end of the year here. What is it that you want to tell people to encourage them? How should they tell their stories? In a lot of cultures, winter is the time the stories are told because the nights are longer. And there are some stories that cannot be told till the first snow falls. So it's a really nice thing to think about as you're hibernating. And I know that for some of you, it still means working 18-hour shifts. The first thing is you're going to be patient with yourselves. So this is long, slow, deep work. So I'm giving you 12 months, 12 months 
to start telling stories. And this time next year, you're allowed to sit down and go, have I told stories this year? You will find that you will have told a lot, but I want you to be really patient because this is behavior change. This takes time. If you're not sure where to start in terms of what stories to tell, some easy ways in are things like a significant teacher in your life. Now that could be someone you hated. It could be someone you loved. It could be somebody who pulled you, stopped you in your tracks from doing something absolutely insane. A moment when you were a teacher, having to stop someone in their tracks. First days, last days, things like that stand out more easily in the memory. So go to those. If I say to you, what's the best team you've ever been on? And if all of you are sitting there thinking, oh my God, it was that time I worked at an emergency out in California. I want you to note that down. So I would keep a little notebook just for this work. And I would say, as you've said, Dan, which is compose orally. Don't write the story down first, just compose it orally. But write a little note to yourself, be like, oh, that California thing. But try to, if you can stand it, try to not analyze the story before you tell it. Try to put yourself in it. So when you're thinking about why it was the best team you ever worked on, see that little town in California that you were working in, the ride to work, put your body in the space of the memory. And then tell it from there, if you can. If it's too traumatic, that might not feel so good, so don't worry about that. But that can often allow you to see the story unfold and you'll realize a lot of things that you didn't necessarily know. Because in medical, you're often trained to report as they are in the military. And that is, I showed up and the patient was tachycardic and then we did this and this and then this happened and then they said, and I want you to step into the story, see the room, think about how many people were in the room, how tired were you, how nervous were you feeling? What was the risk level, right? Because that's a different way of telling the story and that is what activates the brain fully. So like you said, tell it out loud, even if there's no one to tell it to, or if you have someone to tell it to, great. And keep telling. Don't get stuck on one way of telling it. You'll have to memorize it. It'll change. My stories change each time I tell them, right? Because they're living things. So they'll change as your memory changes. And then just write a little note to yourself, right? That was the resuscitation. I'm going to call that the 1am resuscitation because three people were resuscitated at 1am and whatever it is, you give yourself a little way into finding the story and practice. A lot of people think you can't practice storytelling. It has to be natural. It has to just arise in the moment, right? I have to just be a good storyteller or I'm not a good storyteller. That's the most common story we tell ourselves. But actually you can practice telling it and see how it feels and navigate your way through each of the scenes. And then when you go to tell it, you'll have a shape for the story and you'll know if you're telling it in a teaching way or to a class or in a one-to-one session, you know, it's all right to have told it a few times. That's where I would start. And if you want to learn from other people, watch, don't read. Yeah. Because I know there's loads of books on storytelling. That's great. That's great. However, you are already the homo neurons. So if you want to see You want to learn, watch great storytellers, be they in your family, on your team, mentors, teachers, people online, watch them and figure out what they're doing that you can steal. Amazing. Claire, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your stories and for teaching me and everybody else. Thanks for letting me be the last voice of the year. That's a very honorary position. So I'll say to everybody, have a wonderful winter season, whatever you're doing with yourselves and look out for yourselves and each other right there. Phenomenal. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. 
As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com book. All right. Good luck out there.